on a weekend like this at the tail end of Thanksgiving, uh, some of us are able to enjoy and think through all the, the sweetnesses of what God has given us and be thankful. And there are so many reasons for us to be thankful. But for some of us, weekends like this remind us perhaps of those who are no longer with us because death has taken a toll on them. For others, we are also facing the reality of just suffering, things not going the way we expect it to go. How do you motivate yourself or others to endure through difficulty or suffering? People respond differently in various ways to suffering, depending what they are going through. Some are stoic. They just try not to think about suffering, pretend like it's not there, try to ignore it, or perhaps even put on their grit and just tough it out. Others put on more like a victim attitude, uh, thinking like the whole world is against them. They want all to know how unfair life is or how unfair people have been to them. Others become bitter or cynical. Their pain and suffering makes them look at life or even at God with an ongoing doubt and suspicion. Others become angry at God for allowing suffering to take place, especially if they feel betrayed or abandoned or let down. Others simply feel numb. They have no more feelings to feel, no more emotions to express because their feelings and emotions have all been spent on suffering. How do you respond to suffering? What comfort or encouragement do you have to help you persevere through suffering? For those who are Christians, for those who are children of God, the Bible gives us several ways how to persevere through suffering. And today's text will give us one of them. And that strategy and that help for suffering is the hope of the future glory. The hope of future glory. This is found in Romans chapter 8. We'll be reading from verse 18 to 25. Romans chapter 8. We'll be reading from verse 18 to 25. Here is the word of the Lord for us this morning. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with a glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what, is, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me? in asking God to bless our hearts as we hear this word and bless me as 
I preach this word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, revealing your plans with us in a way that your spirit can build in us the hope of the future glory that you have prepared for your children. Father, you know how each of us are this morning. You know whether or not our hearts are filled with joy or filled with a weight of failed expectations, with frustrations, with suffering. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would allow the preaching of this word to encourage us, to build us up, and to remind us of the hope that you give us in Christ. It is the name of Jesus that we pray for his glory and honor and for the glory that you are preparing for us as well. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You can be sure that Paul is not a preacher of a false prosperity gospel. How do we know that? Because he is not afraid and he is not shy to remind believers that suffering is part of our lot on this side of eternity. Paul is not naive and he's not a false preacher, not a preacher who would present suffering as an evidence of lack of faith or lack of grace or as opposite of God's will on this side of eternity even for us who are children of God. Paul is a faithful preacher of the gospel who reminds us that suffering is part of our existence on this side of eternity. And in verse 17, the passage that finished up right where we picked up, in verse 17, Paul actually told us that suffering is a precondition to the glory that awaits us. So how should we respond when we face various kinds of trials? We should not be surprised by the presence of suffering in our lives. But not only should we not be surprised, we should be equipped to know how to persevere through it. And the main point that Paul has in this passage that we just read is simple. What motivates us to press on through suffering is the hope of future glory. This is the message that Paul has for us this morning. What motivates us to press on through suffering is the hope of future glory. How does Paul seek to convince us, to build us up, to have this hope, to have this comfort. In our text, he makes three significant claims, three points by which he wants to impress upon our hearts this hope of future glory, and that this hope of future glory should motivate us to press on through suffering. These points will become the the points of the message this morning, and here they are. If you like taking notes, let me say it for all of us. Uh, at the front end of this message, and then we'll work our way through these points. The future glory far outweighs the present sufferings. The future glory far outweighs the present sufferings. Point number two, all creation longs for the glory of God's children. All creation longs for the glory of God's children. And point number three, We were saved into the hope of this glory. We were saved into the hope of this glory. Let's see how Paul fleshes this out for us and seeks to motivate us, to encourage us to press on through suffering by reminding us of the hope of the future glory. Friends, you may be this morning here as someone who is carrying the burden of suffering. Or you may be this morning here as one who is right now spared from suffering. Perhaps you are in a season when things are going well all around. 
And you might say, this message is not for you today. Oh, Christian, this message is for you today, even if you're not in the midst of suffering. Because all of us, sooner or later, will experience facets of suffering. And Paul wants to encourage us to consider the future glory far outweighs the present sufferings. Paul begins in verse 18 by acknowledging the reality of suffering. Who hasn't experienced some facets of suffering? Some of us this morning, and I know who you are and you know who you are, are going through some significant suffering. You've been gracious enough to let us know, to let at least me know about that, so the elders might know how to pray for you. I pray that this message would be an encouragement to you in this season. Others are more quiet and have not had the courage, perhaps, to share with others how you are suffering. But all Christians face the the suffering that comes with battling sin in our lives. Paul made it known to us that actually a part of facing the struggle with sin in our lives is is a willingness and a, a, a need for us to be open to suffer because putting sin to death in our lives is not a fun experience. All Christians should be willing to pick up the the fight with suffering against sin. And engaging in that suffering is something we should all be willing to do. Paul's strategy to equip us to persevere through the present suffering is to remind us of the hope of future glory. A future glory that awaits all those who are children of God. This future glory is so amazing Paul says that any comparison with our current sufferings are not worth the comparison. That's what he says in verse 18. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with a glory that is to be revealed to us. For some of us, especially if you are in the midst of suffering... It might be tempting to dismiss this as a flamboyant talk, an exaggerated language, perhaps just like a salesman's pitch to exaggerate certain things just to make you buy into the product he's trying to sell you. If you have experienced a lot of suffering in your life, or if you're currently in in a season of suffering, Your pain may seem unbearable, and this comparison may actually push you over the edge to dismiss what Paul is actually saying. Some might be thinking in in their hearts, this man doesn't know my suffering. If he only knew half of what's going on in my life, he would not be saying the things he's saying. The reality is that all of us, when we consider our particular pain of suffering, are quick to dismiss and be skeptical of the, of the validity of what Paul is saying here. But Paul is not speaking lightly of suffering. Paul is not speaking of suffering as one who's been protected or living in the ivory towers of comfort and easy life. I want to remind you of the repertoire, of the history of what Paul has been going through. In 2 Corinthians, he compares his life with those who were ironically called or dubbed super-apostles. Paul compares himself with them, not in terms of his skills or accomplishments, but he compares with them, these so-called super apostles, they're really false apostles, he compares himself with them on the spectrum of sufferings. And listen to his words. Paul says, 
Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is the man who writes in verse 18, for I consider the present sufferings not worth in comparison with the future glory. Paul had experienced the bitter taste of suffering, not only from circumstances of life, but from people who wished him evil. And some of them, false brothers, in other words, they, bear, they bore the name of Christians, but really they weren't. He experienced not only suffering, but death threats and death attempts. It is this Paul who, after all these experiences of suffering, writes in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing. So should we listen to his words? Should we assume that these words are just exaggerated? Sales talk from a man who does not understand suffering? Oh no, my friends. These are the words of a man who truly tasted the bitter and long process of suffering. It may seem at first that he's making light of suffering, but he's not. What makes his suffering, at least in his consideration, look small is not that the suffering is small and weightless, but that the magnitude of the glory that awaits us is so huge that the comparison between the two makes the suffering look small. Paul is making a huge deal about the future glory that is to be revealed to us. The point is not that the suffering is small. The point is that the glory is so much that in comparison, even the hardest, most difficult of sufferings looks not worth the comparison. Oh, friends, so many of us, when we go through suffering, we compare our present with our past when things used to be better. Don't you and I have that tendency? We always compare ourselves in the present when we go through suffering with those good old days in the past where things were just better. Perhaps in a life circumstance or in a relationship when things were indeed different and better. But Paul wants us to compare our present with our future. And not just with a future that we like it to imagine, but a future that God has set for us. 
a future hope that God has predetermined for us. Paul wants us to be reminded of the hope of the future glory. And Paul says, when we consider what God is setting for his children in the future, no matter what you are going through today, it is not worth the comparison. I remember the day when one of my very good friends, well, you all know him, Sebastian Vaduva, his brother, his wife, his brother's wife, was diagnosed with brain cancer and worked through all the chemo, all the treatments. And after much prayer and after much treatment, the Lord chose to answer the prayers by calling this young woman and wife of six children to return to glory. It was one of the hardest funeral services that you could ever be a part of. A faithful, godly wife. A faithful family. And uh, to sit at the coffin of a young mother leaving behind six children. And you wonder, what about that? Humanly, it's hard. It's hard to evaluate the weightiness of our sufferings if all we look at is what is lost in the here and now. And there's no way to sugarcoat that suffering. But the Apostle Paul wants to tell us that this is not the end. That this suffering, no matter how difficult, is not the end of what God has determined for the children who belong to him. Dear Christian, what do you compare your sufferings to? If all you do is compare it to what you lose in the present, you will be devastated. You will be crushed by the weightiness of what you lose. But the Apostle Paul wants us to see and to gaze our eyes to a hope of a glory that the children of God will have. And this hope, Paul wants to tell us, is a hope of a glory that's beyond comparison. I love how one pastor put it beautifully. Your suffering now may seem beyond endurance, but the glory then is beyond compare. Friends, the future glory far outweighs the present suffering. You might say, but <laughs> that's nice to hear, but how do we know what this is about? How do we, how do we get our, our hands able to grip what this future glory is about? And Paul wants to flesh out for us a little bit some glimpses of that future glory. And he does it in, ver in point number two. All creation longs for the glory of God's children. We see this in verses 19 through 22. The hope of future glory is not something only for us to experience individually. Paul is telling us that actually this future glory is a hope that all creation has and longs to experience. Verses 19 through 20, Paul makes several points about this longing that actually creation itself has. And it's actually there's three moves that Paul makes, and all are introduced by the word for. In verse 19, for all creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Interesting. Creation, longing eagerly and waiting for what? For the revealing 
of the sons of God. What an unusual phrase. What does this mean? Why is creation longing, waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God? At the present time, this world is not seeing clearly who are the children of God. But a day will come when all those who have been truly God's children will be shown for what they are. Now, this does not mean that we as God's children uh, should be content to be in this secret society or secret members of God's family. We must be public members of God's family. And yet on this earth, some of us can fool ourselves and can fool others thinking that we are part of God's family, but we may not be. The reality is that a day will come when God will reveal to all creation those who truly are children of God. And simply going to church or simply doing some religious things here and there once in a while will not do it. Will not do it on that day. A day will come when all the children of God will be revealed for who they are. And all creation will get to see them. Now why would all creation be interested and longing to see this moment in, will, in which the children of God will finally be all revealed? Notice the second four that is introduced in verse 20. In verse 20, we learn an important truth about creation. For creation was subjected to futility, but it was subjected in hope. The one who set creation to be subjected in futility is God. Why would God do this? Well, when Adam and Eve, the first so-called humanly created sons of God, when Adam and Eve sinned, they dragged all creation into the bondage of sin and death. A bondage that manifested in decay and corruption. A bondage in which all creation would be on a trajectory towards death. How do we know that? Well, friends, look at these flowers. They used to be really pretty a week ago. What do these flowers tell you about these flowers? They are, they are on the way of decay. Left around for quite a while, even though in water, they're on the way to death. They are on the way to decay. Now, if you're wondering, did I leave that intentionally there for this sermon illustration? No, we forgot to take him. <laughs> but you know what? In God's providence, it's a great illustration. It's a great illustration for all of us to know that actually all of us are on the same journey as these flowers. Decay, weakening, and eventually death. All creation is subjected to this same journey. And why? Because the sons of God rebelled against our Maker. It's our fault. It's because of us, because we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God and have rebelled against our Maker and have chosen to worship the created things instead of our Maker. Instead of being a place where life would reign, creation 
became the place where death, decay, and corruption would reign. And thus, because of our rebellion, God's original purpose with creation was marred by the curse of sin and death. And yet, God subjected this creation to futility. By the way, the meaning of futility is not so much the same, the meaning that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, that things are just futile and uh, passing. One of, the, one of the dimensions of futility in this, in this passage in Romans is that creation has missed living out the original purpose for which God created it. The, the original purpose of being the, the manifold display of unhindered glory has been faltered, has been affected by the curse of sin. So now all creation is under this weight of this corruption. Instead of being the place of life, the place where life rules and reigns, creation is a place where corruption and death and decay reigns. And yet, God subjected this world to futility in hope. That's what verse 21 says. But because of him who subjected it, not just in futility, but subjected it in hope. In hope of what? In hope of two facets. In verse 21, a hope in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Imagine a world in which flowers never die. Those of you who are garden lovers, who love to garden, imagine a world in which your gardening never goes dead, never goes extinct. A world in which all creation will no longer have the effects of decay. But also look at the second facet of this hope. To obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see what, what is the hope that God subjected this world to? Not only to futility, but also he subjected in hope that this creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Oh, friends, creation knows that it's on a trajectory, not only to decay and futility, but on a trajectory to benefit from the freedom that will be presently experienced at the time when God will glorify himself through his children. When the children of God will experience the glory of God, not only in seeing the glory of God, but in the glory of God being manifested through the children of God. In other words... The future glory is not simply a glory that we will get to see. It's also a glory that God will get to display in us so that all creation will see it. All creation will get to see the glory of God displayed in the children of God. In Romans 3.23, Paul told us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Under sin, our condition is that we fall short of reflecting the glory of God as God intended it. But when we will be glorified, all creation will get to experience in the freedom that comes from the glory of God displayed in the children of God. As one Bible teacher put it, it's not simply that glory will be shown to us it's that glory will be shown in us. And that's amazing. Imagine that day. All your personal shortcomings. All your sinful frustrations. All your difficulties. All your sufferings. All your inabilities will be replaced with the glory of God displayed in you displayed through you 
No trace of sin. No trace of suffering. Only the glory of God displayed through you. And all creation is longing is longing for that day when the children of God will be revealed because in that moment, the glory of God will be revealed in them. This is what creation longs to see. I wonder if you long for it as well. Paul tells us that in the meantime, until that day comes, creation is actually groaning, groaning together. Look at verse 24. It has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. How sober to be reminded that our sin affected all creation. To be groaning to the point and to the level of describing this pain as a pain of childbirth. Now, this is talking about creation. This is a metaphor here. Creation is aching so hard that the best image Paul can give to, to describe the ache of all creation as it longs, as it groans eagerly for that day, the best image for creation to be described in its pain is that it groans with a pain's of childbirth. Oh, friends, all of that is because of our sin. All of that is because of the rebellion that we have engaged in against our Maker. But God will free up this creation from this burden. But God will free it up only at a time when his children will be brought forth in their full consummation. It was because of us that creation experienced that curse. And it will be when we will be glorified that creation will also experience its, original, its, its freedom from the original uh, curse. Friends, this is why any attempts... For us to free up creation from the curse of sin can only happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ and not apart from it. No matter how many green policies we would try to have, no matter how many things we would try to do to, to save this planet, there is no saving of this planet from the curse that we have triggered upon it. And it was God who determined this futility upon this earth. The only way for this curse to be lifted up is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it will happen when that gospel will be fully consummated at the time of the revelation of the children of God. But Paul wants us to know not only that all creation longs for this glory to be revealed. Paul closes this passage with a third encouragement when he tells us that we were saved into the hope of this glory. We were saved into the hope of this glory, so we wait patiently. This is in verses 23 through 25. After describing creation as longing for the revealing of God's children, Paul reminds us that we too are longing for this glory. At verse 23, Paul says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see who is longing and eagerly waiting for this glory? It's not everybody. It's not all humanity. It's actually only those who are believers. Only those who are Christians. Only those who have the Holy Spirit in them. Paul calls Christians here as those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is another metaphor 
from the world of agriculture. A first century reader would have understood this very well. In ancient times, the first fruits were the, were the, were the first crop that you pick up, picked up from the harvest. The har- harvest is not yet fully ripe, but it's the first fruits that you get to pick that gives you the clue the harvest is near. The harvest is soon. It's going to happen. We're going to have a crop. The first fruits were, were, those, were those fruits you picked up first. But then you wait for the whole, for the whole crop to come to, fully, to be fully ripe and then be ready for the harvest. Paul uses this metaphor to describe that the Holy Spirit in us is like the first fruits in a harvest. We get to benefit from the, the down payment of the Holy Spirit in us. And to be a Christian means to have this Spirit in you. And the Spirit is in you when you hear the word of the gospel and you repent and trust in Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. It's a Spirit who enables you to understand this gospel. It's a Spirit who enables you to repent. It's a Spirit who enables you to believe and trust in Christ as a Savior. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're wondering, do I have the Spirit of God in me? If you have not yet repented and trusted in Christ, you don't have the Spirit in you. But if you have come to hear this news that we Christians proclaim, that you heard about our rebellion against our Maker, and of the death and the curse of death that we have triggered upon all creation. Friends, if you have heard about our Savior, Jesus, and you have come to put your trust in Him, for Him to be your rescuer, your redeemer, And if you have shown this act of repentance and faith by publicly declaring your faith, friends, you are a believer. The Spirit of God is in you. And we have the Spirit as a first fruits. Oh, friends, if you'd like to know more what that means, we would love to talk to you after the service. But this news is only good news for those who have responded to God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that those who are already Christians have the Spirit in them. And this Spirit is giving us the ability to groan differently. To groan longing for this hope to arrive to fruition. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In adopting us as children of God, God is not only pledging to save our souls, God is not only pledging to save our inner beings, God is actually pledging to save us holistically, including our bodies. The promise of God's salvation envisions both soul and body both the immaterial and the material. That, that's why God's salvation for us and of us is a process that ultimately culminates when re- believers receive glorified bodies on the day of the resurrection at the end of the age. That's why here the language of adoption and the language of being redeemed is used in the future. So far, earlier in this book, Paul has spoken about being adopted as a present reality or as a past reality. We have been adopted. We are being adopted. But here, Paul speaks about our future adoption. And he speaks about our future redemption of our bodies because there's a sense in which God's salvation of us is not merely a point in the past as a conversion. It's not also a process in the present as in sanctification, but it's also a point in the future, and that's glorification. And God's salvation includes all those dimensions. So, Paul says, we wait eagerly. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly 
Oh, friends, Paul prays, and Paul says that we were actually saved in this hope. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Friends, we were saved to be partakers and beneficiaries of this future hope of glory. Not just for a saved soul, but for a saved body. Sometimes evangelicals, we focus so much just on the inner part of our redemption that we fail to realize or to remind one another that God is preparing for us not just an eternity with him, but he's preparing resurrected bodies in which we will experience all eternity with him. Friends, God says that we were saved into this hope of that future glory. This is not a a hope that's like a wishful desire. It's not a hope that says, I hope this is true. No, it's a hope that is certain. And Paul wants to define for us this hope as a certainty of a future reality. Paul says in verse 24, why this future reality is a sure hope. It's called hope, not because it's a wishful thinking, unsure if it really will happen. Paul says it's called hope because it is not seen. Paul says if it was seen, you would not need to call it hope. It's called hope because it is not seen. But just because it is not seen, does not mean that it is not sure. So Paul says, we call it hope because you cannot see it now with your eyes. But because it is so sure, we wait for it. And we wait for it with patience. And Paul makes a powerful application for us because this hope is causing us, is manifested in us through a waiting with patience. Do you see that in verse 25? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Why is this an important application for us and for this entire text? Because that is not how Paul described our waiting in verse 23. Notice how Paul described our waiting in verse 23. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. This is what describes our existence often on this side of creation and of of eternity. As we are confronted by suffering and as we engage constantly in the fight with sin, we groan as we wait eagerly. Creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. We have the first fruits of the Spirit and we groan inwardly. But we are reminded that as we groan inwardly and as we groan with eagerness, we wait not only with eagerness, but we wait with patience. Why is this important? Because there are times for us that we can wait with impatience. Even in our eagerness, we can be impatient and frustrated. And part of what causes the groaning is our impatience. Sometimes we simply choose to wait by ignoring the groaning. We choose to to wait by getting distracted by other things in this life. Sometimes we simply wait with impatience. And this is a temptation that Paul addresses in this last verse here. What can help us, what can help you and I to wait not giving up the 
way, the, the, the eagerness, we want to hold on to the eagerness. We don't want to distract ourselves by the things of this world in such a way that we actually no longer hold on to the eagerness, that we no longer hold on to the longing. The longing is good. The eagerness is good. But we want to hold on to this eagerness with patience. Friends, have you noticed how often our longings for whatever we desire are characterized by impatience in so many things in this life? Just consider how children are eagerly longing for you to fulfill something that you promised them. Perhaps a gift, perhaps an experience, perhaps something that you told them you will do together, and now they bug you all the time, impatiently waiting for that which was promised. But the impatience makes their waiting not easier, but harder. Friends, patience does not mean that we give up longing eagerly for the glory God promised us. Patience means that we hold on tightly to what he has promised. And whether its deliverance will be long or short, whether the waiting will be tougher or easier, we hold on to this hoped future glory. And patience is the, is the gauge that shows us that we have gripped, we have a good solid grip on that future glory, on the hope of that future glory. It's a certainty that the future glory for the children of God is coming. Does not mean that the groaning will go away. Does not mean that the, the waiting eagerly will somehow go out, dissipate. If anything, if the, if the waiting eagerly is not there, I would be concerned. The distractions of this world should not tighten the grip on our waiting eagerly. We should wait eagerly, but we should wait patiently. A few years ago, Ank and I visited a well-known icon of American architecture, the house known as Falling Water. It was designed by American architect Flangroyd Wright. It's famous for uh, a significant feature of this house, namely its balcony that is entirely over a waterfall. And the whole house and this huge balcony that makes, makes it look like the entire house is over a waterfall is supported only on one side of the house. It's an, amaz an amazing experience to see how in the early 1900s uh, architects were able to create such a beauty of a house not near a falling water, but over a falling water. So Anka and I got tickets to, to go and do the tour, the long tour, and uh, we got to hear about the history of the house, the experience of the architect, how, it, how the idea developed and how difficult it was to build it. But along the way, in this experience, in this tour, uh, we learned that just about a decade or two ago, a student, a civil engineer student, uh, did an internship on this house and discovered that this huge balcony that is all hanging over the, the waterfall was actually slowly decaying in its resistance. And if nothing was done to the house, the house was in danger of collapsing. So they studied the proposal, they realized that this man's young student's uh, in, in, intuitions were correct, and uh, they got to do a major restoration of the house to reinforce the concrete with steel beams to ensure that the overhanging of the, that entire balcony over the waterfall would not continue to slowly decay and, and fall to destruction. So they did that. And in the tour, they took pictures of, of all the reconstruction and all the, the ways in which that restoration uh, took place. 
And what was amazing to me in the midst of that process is that the tour guide and the, all the touristy places and all the, the, the brochures and the books that presented the house, the falling water, on their cover, none of them, absolutely none of them, put a picture of the restoration phase. It was only a picture of the finished product. All the covers, all the postcards, only included pictures of the finished product. The restored house. The way it's beautiful. If you saw the pictures in the restoration, you would see scaffolding, cranes, construction workers with hats on. It was not a touristy place. It was a construction site. But on all the pictures, what was portrayed, what was presented in all the design elements was a finished product. In a similar way, Paul wants to tell us, Christians, you are still a construction site. You are still in the process of restoration. This restoration with you and with all creation is not yet complete. It's not a pretty sight, but here's a picture of what you will be when it's all over. Hang tight. God is not finished with you. God is not finished with this creation. And the aim of Paul giving us this picture of the hope of future glory is to give us the hope of the finished products so we would hang on in the meantime. So we would not lose heart. So we would wait to see that all the trouble of the restoration now cannot be compared with the glory of what it will be then. And that glory is not merely the glory of God. It's the glory of you. Because God will make His glory shine through you and in you. This is about your glory that God will share with you. Because that's what Paul said, when we are heirs, when we are children of God, we are heirs of God. And we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. So all that God promised Jesus he will give to you. Hold tight. The construction is not yet over. But the picture of the finished product should help us long for that day. Creation longs for that day. Do you? Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us in your word a picture of what the hope of the future glory is. Father, we thank you that this hope of future glory is a hope that you have given to creation itself, that creation longs for this glory. Creation who knows you as its maker, knows and longs for this ultimate future glory. And in your word, you have told us today that actually this future glory is us. Your glory in us. Oh God, give us eyes to see the finished product. Give us ears to hear that all those who are in Christ will experience the glory that you will share in your son Jesus. And help us, O oh Lord, to look at this finished product and be motivated and encouraged to press on. And to consider that no matter how weighty and difficult our present sufferings are, they are not worth comparing with a future glory. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to believe 
and hear and hold on to that we are truly saved into the hope of this glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.